0: Amos chapter 2, uh, one of the minor prophets, only because of the length of his writing, not because of his importance. Um, you know, kind of go to the middle of your Bible, turn right. Uh, you'll hit the, you hit Psalms, Proverbs, the big prophets, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then if you keep turning right, somewhere in there you hit Amos. And then if you're like me, you have to go back left a little bit because you went too far. You got to go back right a couple of pages, and then well, dadgummit, he's between the yeah, and then you find him. That's that's how I find Amos. Obadiah is harder, just so you know. Amos chapter two verses six through sixteen. We are beginning thirteen weeks, a quarter in four of the minor prophets. Uh, go back one slide, please, ma'am. There we go. The promise of salvation in Amos, Jonah, Hosea, and Micah. God's constant pursuit. That's what we're going to see as we move through the prophets, is God's constant pursuit. If we read from Genesis to Revelation, we see God's constant pursuit. That's the theme of our 13 weeks uh, through these four minor prophets. We, we're not hitting all of it. Uh, it's four messages from Amos, two from Jonah, then I think four from Hosea, three from Micah, or something like that, uh, is the way... It works out but as you're turning there let's look at or go over our celebrations this week man I've got a list I've got one two seven bullets and I think I could have said more I got a question this week about inviting people who aren't church members to our d-groups well yes absolutely, Uh, we want anybody who wants to come to be involved in anything in our church to feel welcome and invited. So yes, that's a great question. The celebration is that question's being asked. Hey, can we invite our neighbors to this thing? They're thinking about their neighbors. They're thinking about, hey, they would enjoy this. They would like to be a part of this. They could learn from this. This is a way to share Christ with them. Whatever was going through the, the, the head of, of those who were asking, yes, and that's a celebration. So think about that. Uh, I posted this in our members page on Facebook. We have had eight baptisms this year. And our average Connect Group attendance this year is around 75. Now that attendance is up about 15 to 20 since post uh, since pandemic hurricane era. Um, But if you remember, in January of 2020, before our pandemic and hurricane year, we had in uh, in as part of as one of our goals of Vision 23 was to baptize a number equal to 10% of our average Connect group attendance. And as I said in the Facebook page, that was just kind of an arbitrary number. It was just a good round figure to work toward, and we have very little to do with that other than sharing the gospel. The rest is on uh, the person and the Holy Spirit working in him or her. But two years after the pandemic and hurricane we've reached that goal we have baptized 10 percent this year already of our uh 10 percent of our average connect group attendance i I don't know why that number came up two years ago two and a half nearly three years ago now but it did we had 50 people at our d group potluck now we're excited about that because it sounds like you were excited about d groups but it also sounds like you're excited about potlucks um Because I think that's our first potluck since the pandemic. I guess from now on, we have uh, BPH, APH. Before pandemic and hurricane, after pandemic and hurricane. And that's just the way we're going to measure things for quite some time. 50 people at our potluck. Uh, In August, we averaged 120 in worship. On Sunday mornings. That is our largest non-special event month since, you guessed it, the pandemic. 120. We haven't hit that number since the uh, February or March of 2020, and we averaged that in August. Over 30 of you have signed up for D groups. The last number I think I saw was 33. And there may have been a couple more that have signed up since then. And some of you that have signed up are youth. Our youth are being becoming part of the D groups now. And while we're talking about the youth, the youth have averaged thirty-one in attendance. That ain't counting the adults. Thirty-one in attendance on the first three Wednesday nights uh, that they've been back having their regular Wednesday night type activities. How's our money doing? Well, I don't care. I I don't don't know. Actually, I don't know. I don't know what uh, August looked like yet. I do know that our power bills for this month are over $1,000 less than they were last month, so that's good. Our power bills are going down, so that means less money being spent. But you know what? I don't care, because if we get money, we're going to do ministry, and if we don't get money, we're going to do ministry. Our job as a church is to make disciples, not money. And if we're basing our success on what we see, as far as our job is concerned, we're doing great. That's my focus. We're excelling at making disciples right now. And if we remain faithful to the calling, to the job, God will take care of all that other stuff. And if that does mean that there's not enough money in a few months, so be it. We're still going to make disciples as long as we can. And if it means the money's there that we need to do all the things we want to and more, you know what we're still going to do? Make disciples. So, lots of celebrations this week. Uh, I needed that this week. Uh, It was a very busy week, very hectic week. A lot of things didn't go as I had planned, but to see what God is continuing to do in our church is incredibly uplifting. All right, our memory verses. We, We didn't do last quarter's memory verse, we didn't finish it. There you've got uh, the, the beginning words. I hope you kept your bookmarked like I did. Let's see what we can do. Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below who keeps the Gracious covenant with His servants who walk before you with all their heart. One heart. First Kings 8:23. You'll notice that our, our poster, our, our Bible verse poster that is normally right here in the foyer, has been replaced by the next months, or the next quarters, actually this isn't for a full quarter. This is only for six weeks. the next one. Pat, the next one. There you go. Uh, It is now in the foyer, and then uh, last month's is in the hallway in our Hall of Scripture. So, let's say this one together. This one's going to be much easier. I've almost got it memorized, but if I try, I'll mess up. So, I'm going to read it. But let justice flow like water, and righteousness like an unfailing stream. Amos 5, 24. All right. So... This whole message series uh, is going to have. Some some notes missing? Nope, I'm right where I want to be. Okay. Uh, This whole message series is going to have a repeating cycle of description of wrongs, warning, and hope. That's that's what the prophets did. Uh, Some prophets had less hope than others, but every one of them had some hope. Here are the warnings. here's, Here's what you've done. The, 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 the list of wrongs. Here's what's going to happen because of what you've done. And if you turn back, hope. And what we're going to see is this whole uh, God's relentless pursuit idea shows up in a m- bunch of different ways. God is pursuing multiple goals in these passages that we're going to study. He's pursuing justice. He's pursuing righteousness. That's our memory verse. Uh, he's pursuing judgment, he's pursuing repentance, he's, re- he's pursuing salvation. There are a number of uh, goals he has as he pursues his people, as he speaks to them through the prophets. And as we look at these things, his pursuit of his goals shows us by necessity what we're doing wrong and where we fail in or or rather where we fall in his pursuit next slide please pat there we go so as we look uh for his pursuit of goals as we see what he is pursuing what he's doing we see where we fit into that this should ring some bells for you i i still cannot believe how often on a week-to-week, sometimes day-to-day basis, I go back to experiencing God. This is just, uh, and I'm talking about the, uh, the study, experiencing God. This is just another expression of that. See where God is working and join Him there? Well, as we look at the prophets, we see maybe not where God is working, but how God is working, and we adjust our lives to fit that, however that may be. So as we move through these prophets, here's my warning to you. Here's what you need to prepare yourself for. As we move through these prophets specifically, but any of the prophets, if you read the major and minor prophets, you're going to have to do this. You're going to have to put aside what your favorite politician or your favorite talking head on cable news has said about any a number of topics but especially things like social justice CRT marxism socialism immigration welfare any other issue and you have to hear what god says about people and justice and righteousness If you come to Scripture and you cling to your particular 21st century political or social ideology, you're going to miss what God is telling you to do because you're going to discount or dismiss what Scripture says because it doesn't fit what you already think or believe. Instead, you need to base what you think or believe on what Scripture says, and I guarantee you, Every time you do that, God is going to contradict much of what you already think, believe, hear, or consume. We have to listen to God, not to Fox or MSNBC or CNN or Newsmax or Republicans or Democrats. We listen to God. We listen to Scripture because we are believers first. We are followers of Jesus first, and all of those other things only in so much as they fit us as believers. You're also going to have to set aside your your upbringing, your personal history, whatever dominant culture you come from. The world is more than what you have experienced an ideal world is what God says, not what your experience says, not what your culture or upbringing say. To hear the prophets is to ignore everything else. If you don't believe me, read the people's response to the prophets because they had the same problem. We don't want to hear what you have to say, Amos and Hosea and Jonah. I mean, the Ninevites did. They were fine. They, they heard Jonah and repented immediately with, with like a three-word sermon. But Jeremiah, let's throw him in the pit. Let's get rid of him. Shut up. Isaiah, we don't want to hear you. Jesus will say, you, you killed the prophets. You stoned them. You, you, you skinned them alive. You, you cut them in half, and that's what you do. Well, we're actually even going to look at it now. So, to hear the prophets is to ignore everything else because they are going to contradict half or more of everything you believe, no matter what you believe. If we are seeing, if Scripture is confirming us, we are probably believing us more than Scripture. So, we come to Scripture with a blank slate as best we can. It's not easy. But as best we can, we come to Scripture with a blank slate. Now, I want to give you a background of Amos, who he is, the, the letter, and that sort of thing. But I'm, I'm already running a little late. I could not tell you everything I want to in seven minutes like this next video that I'm going to show you will. It is a great video. If you've been on Facebook, you've already seen it. But this is a good A great, actually, background of all of Amos, and we are going to look at a number of the things that are mentioned over the next four weeks. So put your ears on and listen to this video.
1: The book of the prophet Amos. Amos was a shepherd and a fig tree farmer who lived right near the border between northern Israel and southern Judah. Now, the North had seized its independence about 150 years earlier. Remember 1 Kings chapter 12. And it was currently being ruled by Jeroboam II, a successful military leader. He won lots of battles and new territory for Israel, and he generated lots of wealth. But in the eyes of the prophets, he was one of the worst kings ever. His wealth had led to apathy, and he allowed idol worship for the gods of Canaan, which in turn led to injustice and the neglect of the poor. And it got to the point where Amos could couldn't take it anymore. He sensed God calling him to go trek up north to Bethel, an important city that had a large temple, and start announcing God's word to the people. And this book is a collection of his sermons and poems and visions uttered over the years. They were compiled later to give God's people a sense of his divine message to the northern kingdom and it's a message we still need to hear today. The book has a fairly clear design. Chapters 1 and 2 are a series of messages to the nations and Israel. Then chapters 3 to 6 are a collection of poems that express Amos's message to the people of Israel and its leaders. Chapters 7 through 9 contain a series of visions that Amos experienced that depict God's coming judgment on Israel. Let's just dive in. So the book opens with a series of short poems that accuse all of Israel's neighbors of violence and injustice. And this is kind of odd because the book's opening line said that Amos was going to speak against Israel. But watch how this works. As Amos is naming all of these neighboring nations, you can go look at a map and see that he's creating a circle. And when he's done, Israel lies right in the center, like a target in the crosshairs. And on Israel, Amos unleashes a poetic accusation that's three times longer and more intense than any of these others. He accuses Israel's wealthy of ignoring the poor and allowing grave injustice in their land, specifically by allowing the poor to to be sold into debt slavery and then going on to deny any of these people legal representation. And this Amos asks, is this the family that was once denied justice and enslaved in Egypt? The family that God rescued from oppression and slavery? The party's over, Amos says. God is done putting up with you. And so the opening of the next section explains why. God says, I chose you Israel from among all the families of the earth. This is an allusion to Genesis 12, how God had called the family of Abraham to become God's blessing to all of the nations. And so then God says, so this is why I will punish you for all of your sin. Israel had a great calling, which came with great responsibility. And so their sin and rebellion brings great consequences. Now this section brings together a lot of Amos's poems, and you'll see a few key themes repeated over and over. So first, he's constantly exposing the religious hypocrisy of Israel's wealthy and their leaders. And he describes how they faithfully attend the religious gatherings, giving offerings and sacrifices, all the while neglecting the poor and ignoring injustice. And Amos says it's all a sham, that God actually hates their worship because it's totally disconnected from how they treat people. God says a real relationship with him will transform a person's relationships. And so Amos' is called to true worship is to let justice flow like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Now, these two words, they're super important for Amos and actually all of the prophets. So righteousness, or in Hebrew, tzedakah, refers to a standard of right, equitable relationships between people, no matter their social differences. And justice, or in Hebrew, mishpat, refers to concrete actions that you take to correct injustice and create righteousness. And so both of these are to permeate the life of God's covenant people like a rushing stream fills a dry riverbed. The next theme is Amos' repeated accusations of Israel's idolatry. So remember, when the northern kingdom broke away from southern Judah, their king built two new temples to rival Solomon's in Jerusalem. And he placed a golden calf in each, remember 1 Kings chapter 12. Since then, Israel had only accumulated more idols, worshiping the gods of sex and weather and war. And in the prophet's view, the worship of these gods always led to injustice because these gods don't require the same degree of justice and righteousness as the God of Israel, not to mention that these gods were immoral themselves, not the God of Israel. He's different. So he can say in one place, seek me that you may live, and then right after that say to Israel, seek good, not evil, that you may live. So true worship of the creator God of Israel, it's synonymous with doing good, with generosity, and with justice. And so the final theme in these chapters is that because Israel and its king have rejected Amos and the other prophets, God will send the day of the Lord. This is a great and terrible act of justice on Israel. And specifically, Amos predicts that a powerful nation will come and conquer and decimate their cities and take the people away into exile. And we know his prediction came true. Some 40 years later, the Assyrian Empire swooped in and did exactly as Amos had said. The book closes with a series of visions that Amos experienced, and their symbolic depictions of the coming day of the Lord. So he sees Israel devastated by a locust swarm, and then by a scorching fire, and then they're being swallowed up like overripe fruit. And in the final vision, Amos sees God violently striking the pillars of Israel's great idol temple at Beth El, and the whole building comes crumbling down. It's an image of God's justice on the leaders and the gods of Israel. Their end has finally come. But then all of a sudden in the final paragraph we see a glimmer of hope. It picks up this image of Israel as a destroyed building and God says that out of the ruins he will one day restore the house of David. In other words he's going to bring the future messianic king from David's line and he will rebuild the family of God's people which surprisingly we're told is going to include people from all of the nations. All of the devastation caused by Israel's sin and God's judgment will that day be reversed. Now this final paragraph is super important. It's the only sign of hope on the other side of judgment. And it helps us see how this book is exploring the relationship between God's justice and his mercy. If God is good, he has to confront and judge evil among Israel and the nations. But his long-term purposes are to restore his world and build a new covenant family. And so through Amos' words, we still today hear his call to learn from Israel's hypocrisy and disaster and to embrace a true world worship of this God, which should always lead to justice and righteousness and loving our neighbor. And that's what the book of Amos is all about.
0: I also couldn't have drawn all that, so um, it's another reason that was better than me. So that is the, the book of Amos. Now, today we are looking at two 6 through 16. Our connect group reading and lesson was 4 through 16. Uh, we're, we're leaving out the part of, for, for Judah this morning uh, from this message and just focusing on Israel. As the video said, he, uh, Amos has given pronouncements against a bunch of kingdoms, and they were all short, a couple of verses each. And we get to Israel, and Israel would have heard this sermon and been all excited. Oh, yeah, tear them up, Lord. Tear up all those kingdoms. And and Amos would have at the end said, oh, but you, Israel. And he spends quite a bit of time on them. Let's read uh, together Amos 2, verses 6 through 16. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four, "...because they sell a righteous person for silver, and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl, profaning my holy name. They they stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral, and in the house of their God they drink wine obtained through fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorite in Israel as Israel advanced." His height was like the cedars, and he was as sturdy as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath, and I brought you from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness in order to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is this not the case, Israelites? This is the Lord's declaration. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, Do not prophesy. Look, I'm about to crush you in your place as a wagon crushes when full of grain. Escape will fail the swift. The strong one will not maintain his strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The one who is swift of foot will not save himself, and the one riding a horse will not save his life. Even the most courageous of the warriors will flee naked on that day. This is the Lord's declaration. Whew. And then that's where the sermon ends. No invitation or anything. He just ends the sermon. What is our idea this morning? What do you need to walk away with this morning? Social justice is biblical justice, and God's judgment is on his people that don't pursue it. Now again, remember, I told you at the beginning, you have got to jettison the definitions and the ideas that have been put into your heads from whatever source of information you go to most. Because some of you will already bristle at the very idea of social justice, yet in this book, Amos uses that very phrase. Not in our passage this morning, but later on. So you've got to redefine terms. Do not let the world define what God says. We let God define what we believe, and then we approach the world that way. Social justice is biblical justice, and God's judgment is on his people that don't pursue it. And that is what we see in verses 6 through 16. So let's look at the passage. Verses 6 through 8 show us the sin of social injustice. As he is uh, beginning this sermon, as he preaches this sermon, there, there's little to no issue of worship or religion in this sermon. He, he, he briefly touches on it, um, uh, but he doesn't, he doesn't mention it hardly at all. And, and it, it's in passing, and it's, it, it has to do with how they have treated others, and taken that as part of the worship. As a matter of fact, uh, even on verse uh, eight, some of our translations, when it says "and in the house of their God," will will capitalize God. I don't know if that's a good idea, there, because Israel did not have a temple to. They had a temple to Yahweh. That's what they called it. But they worshipped every other god possible, also. So it's it probably best to have that as the plural, the gods y'all worship. But he doesn't get into condemning that. Well, we could ask why. I think probably because Israel at this point, was that ship had sailed with them. They had begun the country with false worship. From the first days of, uh, of Jeroboam after, uh, after the kingdom split, they had a fake temple. So that has always been a thing. Now he's just telling them about the end result of following the wrong gods. All of these issues that he's going to mention in six through eight are social justice issues. They are injustice in society. So if the opposite of injustice in society, or the opposite of injustice in society, would be societal or social justice. Again, we let scripture define our our terms, and all of these are abuse of power issues in some way. The strong make taking advantage of the weak. And as we read the first uh, bit of chapter one, uh, first bit of chapter two and back through chapter one, we see that these are some of the same issues that the other nations are facing. Jerusalem, or, or Judah, is the only one that got the, the word about religion, about their faithfulness. They are being judged uh, because they have rejected the instruction of the Lord and not kept His statutes in verse four. Israel is the same way. But as Etta pointed out in our Connect group this morning, the issues that Amos is addressing here are basic human rights issues that every nation should have followed. But the onus is greater on Israel and Judah because not only is it a basic human right issue, but God said specifically, and do it this way and even take it further often than a basic human right, uh, rights activist might say. God says, oh no, it's, it's, it's bigger than that. It's more than just you have to be nice. It's you have to do this because they're, my, uh, I, they're created in my image. And who you are supposed to be as Israel, which the video pointed out. Yes, they, but these other countries broke God's laws too... But they didn't have God's laws. Israel and Judah did. So their judgment is double. Their sin is double in that case. Israel was supposed to be better than everybody else. I mean, we've got application already for us as believers. We can't say, well, yes, but they do that too. Well, great, but we were told not to. And maybe they should know, but they don't. They're not believers. We don't expect the world to act like the world, but we do expect believers to act like Jesus. And that's what Amos is saying Israel, you didn't act like the God who brought you out. All right, so what are the issues that he addresses here? Uh, there are six, eight, depends on how you do it. We're going with six this morning. Uh, first of all, in verse six, we see prison or slavery for small debts. He says uh, they, they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. We're talking about very likely here uh, debtor's prison or selling into slavery because you owe a debt. But the debt is minuscule. It would be like one of us having to go to prison because of uh, 50 bucks, 100 bucks that we hadn't paid back yet. It, it, the, the, the punishment in no way fits the crime, but it, it benefits the the person in power, they get to sell that person into slavery and, and get restitution. Most likely, that person is going into slavery to the one they owe the debt. Well, that just creates more indebtedness, because now I've got him for free. I don't, I don't want him to get the 50 bucks or 100 bucks or whatever it is. I'm, I like having this free labor. Verse 7A, we see enrichment off the poor. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground. They, they walk over people figuratively. They, they use them. They are merely uh, uh, cattle to be uh, uh, sent through the chute just so that they can make money. They're cogs in the wheel. They are, they're just bits of the machine to make rich people money. That's all that they were doing with the poor. No, no care for them, no thought for how can I make the lives of these people better, how can I improve their life, take some of what I have earned and, 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 and said, you know what, let me share that. Let's push that down to the, 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 uh, the hourly workers a little bit. No, it was all about making the rich rir- richer no matter what happened to the poor. Obstruct the path of the needy in 7b, manipulation of the courts. Well, the rich people got to use the court in a much more uh, 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 favorable fashion than the poor people did. Does this sound like anything going on today? If you, got, if you can get the best lawyer, you can get the best uh, uh, defense and you can get off much more easily. And that's what they were doing. They were, they, they were oppressing the poor in the courts, manipulating the best lawyer, paying the judge, whatever it took in order to get the verdict that they wanted against the person who owed them the 50 bucks or 100 bucks, be able to sell them into slavery, and, and just perpetuating what was going on. And This was part of how Israel had earned its wealth under Jeroboam II, not the first. Uh, continuing in 7c a man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl profaning my holy name this could go back to the selling into slavery due to debt if she's pretty we're going to make sure she can't pay back her debt then we're going to bring her into the house abuse of power rape sexual abuse sexual assault but they could get away with it, right? Because they had the money and they could pay the courts and they could uh, buy, buy the best lawyer. And God says, this, this here's where he kind of gets into the hole. And this is specifically something I told you not to do. This is where he says, I expect better of you, my people. And you're doing this very thing. Verse 8, they stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral. The, the every altar, again, we're getting hints of this, this um, polytheism that they have brought into the northern kingdom, but, but that's not his focus. It's the collateral. You stretch out beside every altar. You're doing all these worship things, and this may be a little throwback to the, to the maiden. Uh, it doesn't imply that she is a, a slave or a prostitute, but there, there, there could be some relationship there. But you're, you're doing this at, at these altars that aren't real altars to gods who aren't real gods on coats that don't belong to you, on coats that are taken as collateral. Well, you've got to go back to, I think, Exodus, where it says that if someone borrows from you and you take their coat as collateral— Especially if they are a poor person who doesn't have much, and you take their coat as collateral, you have to give that coat back to them at night. Because it's very likely the only way they have to keep warm. And Amos is saying, y'all take the coats as collateral, and you're just throwing them next to these fake altars, laying down on them, doing God only knows what. Probably call it worship somehow. You and your son. And then he continues, And in the house of their gods, I'm going to say gods here because I don't think it's Elohim, it's not Yahweh. So in the house of their gods, they drink wine obtained through fines unjust or misused fines. All right, is it a legitimate fine? Well, that's questionable because if we go up to verse 6, he says they sell a righteous person for silver. Righteous people uh, usually don't get fines, but let's just assume they did. They were riding their mule through town. That mule just got a little fast. They got a ticket. I did it. Just, you know, my, my one mule power cart got a little faster than I intended. So they got the ticket, had to pay the fine, and so rather than the fine going to, I don't know, help the poor or whatever, the people, the, the, the magistrates, or the rich people who own the magistrates, they're reveling off of the fine. They're taking the money and buying wine and getting drunk with it. And he says, this is your sin. This is what you have been doing for years. Yeah, your worship's all fouled up. Yeah, you're, you're, not, you're not even in the house of God anymore. You're, you, you've got your own gods and all kinds of altars. But that has led you to walk on anybody who's not rich and in power. And that is not the people I called you to be. That is not who you are supposed to be, Israel. This is your sin of social injustice. In verses 9 through 11, Amos shows them the cure for social injustice. I probably should have said the inoculation for social injustice because he set this up beforehand to make sure that they wouldn't do these things. He lines it out for them in verses 9 through 11. He says in verse 9, I destroyed the Amorite as Israel advanced. His height was like the cedars, and he was as sturdy as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. First of all, he removed the worst of the social injustice offenders. Amorites were a particular people, but the word also came to mean just everybody that was where Israel was supposed to be. Everybody in the promised land. And he removed them, and they were the ones who sacrificed their children... To false gods and would cut open the, the bellies of pregnant women and would do all these things that uh, Amos has talked about in chapter 1 in the first part of uh, chapter 2. And God says, I cleared them out. I got rid of them. And if you remember back to Joshua and, 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 and the commands to Moses, he told them, when you get in there, make sure you kill everybody. Make sure you clean them all out too because if you don't, you're going to end up following them. You're going to end up doing the things they do. But I'm going to go before you. They were tall as cedars and big as oaks. We don't have a lot of cedars around here, but we got live oaks. We know what big as an oak can be. So he says, that's what they were, and I took care of them for you. I got rid of, I inoculated, supposed to have, inoculated the land from the social injustice that was going to tempt you if you got rich and wealthy and powerful, which you would have. You were going to because he was going to take care of them. Verse 10, I brought you from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness in order to possess the land of the Amorite. He removed them from a nation of social justice offenders. Um, I think I have it wrong. I just realized, yeah, the first bullet should say removal of the worst of the social justice offenders, not injustice offenders. The second bullet is right, the removal of a nation from social justice. Uh, from a nation of social justice offenders. So I brought you out of Egypt, where they did the same thing, where you know, they used slaves to build pyramids and tombs. and oh, I, I took you out of that, because that was not a place where you could be my people. That was not where you were going to grow like me as a nation and be a blessing to all nations, as Genesis chapter 12 says you're going to be. But I didn't just do that. I didn't just remove temptation, and I didn't just remove you from temptation. But verse 11 says, I sent help. He provided, uh, pro- we see provision of those to teach righteousness in 11a. I raised up some of your sons as prophets. I called people to be preachers, to preach scripture to you. And you know what? They got, you got mad at them when they said stuff like social justice from the pulpit. They didn't say what you wanted them to say. So you killed them and threw them in pits and ignored them. I raised up Nazarites. I provided uh, those to exemplify righteousness. He says in 11b, I raised up some of your sons to be prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Nazarites couldn't cut their hair, couldn't drink wine, and couldn't touch dead bodies. That was pretty much all their laws, all their rules. And, and those rules were to just be an example to the people. And the most famous Nazarite we have is Samson. And he did all three. Uh, he broke all three. He cut his hair. He messed with dead bodies all the time. And the dude was known for getting drunk. And he says, not, he's not talking about Samson here, but he says, your prophets. Well, first he says, <laughs> 11C. Isn't that the case? Israelites you remember the prophets right you remember the Nazarites right you remember the messages they preached and the example they showed because some of them did did it right like uh, uh, Samuel Samuel was also a Nazarite and he did it correctly And some of the prophets were bad, and they didn't speak for God, like the prophet that Jeroboam set up in Israel. He wasn't one of God's prophets. We have prophets confronting false prophets throughout the prophets, saying, don't listen to that guy because he ain't listening to God. He's listening to you, telling you what you want him to tell you. That's not a prophet. That's a parrot. And that's where we get sometimes parrots say to us what we want to hear and scripture says what we don't want to hear and parrots make us feel better. And God says, you are to be different. And you know you are. Rhetorical question, 11C. Isn't that the case? Disciples of Jesus? And then we move from The cure for social justice that he had set up to the judgment on social injustice. From the cure for social injustice to judgment on social injustice. Because we see in verse 12, they rejected the cure, they rejected the inoculation. He says, But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, do not prophesy. So you, you made the ones who lived a particular example fail in their exemplary living, whether they did it by force, literally, or they just so ignored it that it was meaningless. Same for the prophets. Well, they, they were told not to. They were like, shut up. I don't want to hear this message. Do you ever, I can't remember which prophet it is that the king said, do you ever have anything good to say, Prophet? Huh? I still didn't hear you. Elijah, or Elijah. Elijah. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. It was it, yeah, Elijah, Elisha, and it was Ahab, I think, saying to Elijah, "Oh, here comes the one who never has anything good to say to me." Does that sound familiar? Is this any those thoughts ever go through a a, a church member's head sitting listening to the preacher? Does he didn't have anything good to say to us? I know it goes to the preacher's head. They rejected the cure. They didn't listen to Him. Second Timothy 4, three, The day is coming when they will reject sound doctrine, sound teaching, because it doesn't fit what we want it to fit. So since they rejected the cure, or rejected the inoculation, they rejected the teaching, they had rejected the exemplary uh, live, uh, the the Nazari- Nazarites living the exemplary life—probably what they do with the Nazarites—is oh, goody goodies They think they're so, you know, oh, they they do all the stuff they're supposed to, eh. instead of going. I need to be more like them because that's why they're here. God says, "Well, as the video said, I'm done with you. The jig is up. You are done." Crushed, verse 13 says, Look, I'm about to crush you in your place as a wagon crushes when full of grain. That's a very hard phrase to translate from Hebrew no matter what you do it ends up with some sort of crushing either they uh, they cannot stand under the weight of God or they crack or they're going to crack like the wagon cracks under the weight or they're going to be crushed like the dirt underneath the weight regardless what we get is crushing by God the church in AD 100 or the church in AD 20 22, needs to be careful that the lampstand is not removed, that we are not crushed by God because of our willingness to go through spiritual motions, because they were doing it in Judah too, spiritual motions without living out the commands of the law. Jesus tells the Pharisees, You tithe on the smallest herbs you have, the the least little bit that you're given, your, your mint, your dill, and your cumin, and you should have. Those are good things to do, but you have ignored the weightier things of the law. Loving your neighbor as yourself, caring for the poor, the distressed, the distraught, the oppressed, and you will be crushed. Church, if you do not tend to those things. And your best abilities will not protect you, verses 14 through 16. Then that's that's what he's saying. You, your wonderful army will do you no good. You you can't run when you should. You can't stand when you have to. Your technology, your bowmen, won't save you. Your tanks, your chariots, your horses will not save you. Your, your best trained People will run in confusion and unequipped. When the judgment comes, you won't be able to stand against it. We hear echoes or foreshadows, maybe, of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. When they stand before Jesus and say, But didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I uh, help the poor in your name? Listen to this. They were doing all the good things. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. You, you. you had this idea that if you went through some motions but didn't pay attention to what I told you specifically to do, that I'd be okay with that. I'm not okay with that. For Israel, it was you went through the motions of worship but you didn't obey the, the, the smaller things that, that really show that you trust me and believe me and follow me. Well, we jump to the New Testament, and we see going through the motion of those good things, but you never took the step to Jesus. You say, well, if I just do enough things, he'll accept me. And the fact is, we are only accepted by faith, not by works. This judgment of Amos is, is pure, I'm sorry, this sermon of Amos is, is pure judgment. There's no hope at the end of this sermon. Like I said, there's no invitation. There's no altar call. There's no repent and come forward and we'll pray for you. It is just judgment, but it it should instill introspection, fear, and change from those who hear it. That was his point. Remember, this was collected. He's given the sermons, but suddenly it's collected to show us what he was saying. Maybe he preached something right after this. But what we hear today, first of all, is that the people of God should be the most concerned about the rights and needs of all people, people made in the image of God, imago Dei. Even above our own rights and needs, Philippians 2, 3 through 4, let me read it to you again because it's just that good. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Israel should have been concerned about the poor among them. We should be uh, concerned about the rights and the needs of all people among us. So materialism, dehumanization, exploitation, racism, abuse, and oppression for the sole purposes of power or profit should not just be things we don't do, but things that we fight against we can say well i'm like, at least i'm not like that tax collector over there but until we are trying to fix the problems we're just like the tax collector over there two loving our neighbor as ourselves makes amos's sermon unnecessary if we get the first commandment and we think we oh love god with all your heart soul mind and strength that's what the people thought i mean they went through those motions but Jesus says the second commandment is nearly as great as the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. If we are doing that, suddenly we get to look at Amos' sermon and go, I don't need that. I don't think we're there. And third, we see with Amos' message a dire message with absolutely no hope. But we are this side of the cross, not that side of the cross. But it is a dire message without Christ. A dire message without hope, because that is who we are without Christ. We have no hope if we are depending on ourselves. If we think that I can go through some motions religiously, and God will approve of me, we're wrong. Amos chapter 2. If I think I can go through even the the the, the social justice motions of Matthew 7, cup of cold water, visiting in prison, food, etc. I can do all the good things in society, but if I've never trusted Christ, I still have no hope. See, that's that's where the problem comes. That's the problem with a social gospel. Religious fervor doesn't save you. Social action doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. And when you come to Jesus, you should have religious fervor and social action. But those two things are a result of our salvation, not the source of our salvation. You see the difference? See why we should and you should be able to talk about and preach about and speak about and read about and be involved in those things that we call social justice. And depending on who you listen to over the weekend on the news channels, you'll have a different opinion of it. But we reject all of that and say, what does God say? God says, don't trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground. Don't obstruct the path of the needy. A man and a father should not have sexual relations with the same girl. You should not take uh, garments as collateral overnight. You should not waste fines and live riotously on them. You should be fair, just equitable, you should be helpful, you should be reaching, you should be going to, you should be lifting up at every opportunity and not pushing down. You should, as Martin Luther King said in the 60s, it is great to tell somebody to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but it is a, uh, I don't remember what phrase he used, but let's just say it was a devil's mouth that would tell them to pull themselves up by something they don't even have. That's where the church steps in. It's where the followers of Jesus step in. I'm excited that we are expanding our food pantry uh, here lately. Uh, Ashley Vest is working with Janice and Sue to to, uh, expand it and and be more... um, visible to the community it has been in the past just if somebody came we had a little food for them but but i want to do more i I know we've got care help but we can do something we can always do more so ashley and and sue and and janice are working on that to see how we can do that and that's just the start is somebody gonna come to jesus because we gave them ravioli chef boy rd well chef boy rd is not going to save them but a cup of warm Chef Boyardee in Jesus' name could be the beginning of their salvation. And so, we leave this morning again with our big thought. Social justice is biblical justice, and God's judgment is on His people that don't pursue it. We have hope. We're this side of the cross. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for our false faith in religious activity. Jesus died for our false faith in social action. Jesus died for every sin we will commit. Those two things won't save you, but Jesus will. The wages of your sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Next slide, please, Pat. That is our hope of salvation. Not a thing that we do, but the one in whom we trust. And it's as simple as that, it's as simple as faith. Not a work, not an action, faith. And today you have a next step to take because of this message. Maybe today is just as simple. I mean, I would love for every one of us to storm the the the, the food banks and the the clothes distribution places and and pregnancy care centers and all the opportunities and and you just you're just throwing money out to people who need it as you leave the building. Uh, but probably I'm not even going to do that. But this morning, I want to just just break away a little piece of the shell that I've built around me that says, well, if they're in that situation, somehow they probably deserve it. And I don't have to do anything to help them because they got there on their own, they can get out on their own. That's my culture talking. That's my history talking. Maybe that's my next step. Maybe your next step is salvation. You you have a dire message in your heart that you're not saved, and there's no hope for you outside of Christ. You can accept salvation. Follow in obedience with baptism. Conform your life to Christ. Submit to God's plan and purpose. Maybe you need to join our church this morning. Whatever it is, we're going to take a time here in just a minute where you can do that. You can come up. I will pray with you if you'd like. Chelsea will be here. We'll have... A couple of deacons in the back that would love to pray with you. Maybe you want to make public some decision that you have made. Maybe you just want to come here and pray. But whatever you do, as we sing in a few minutes, make a decision for Christ. It might not be salvation, but one more way, one more little chunk off the shell, one more one-degree turn toward what Jesus wants you to be. And then you will have left this service this morning changed because of what God did in you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us through the harshness of the prophets that we have a responsibility to have the same compassion, empathy, sympathy, sorrow for all people that you have the same compassion and sympathy and empathy and sorrow that would allow you to send your son to die in our place and lord sometimes we quibble about whether somebody deserves a helping hand either with food or finances or clothes or whatever lord if we will just have your heart we'll never quibble We will give generously. We will go generously. And we will fight for those who are downtrodden, oppressed, poor, abused, hurting, sick, in prison. God, give us your heart. That we will seek justice. And ultimately, we will seek through that justice, through that help, the salvation of the person. Our ultimate goal. Make disciples. God, show us how we can do that. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So as we sing this morning, what's God going to do with you? Let him work on your heart. Let's stand, sing, worship him, and do business with him this morning.